everyone, welcome back to Keeping Track. This episode is another edition of our Women in Coaching series. We speak with Hannah Chapeldick, the women's track, middle distance, and cross-country coach at Brown University. As a student athlete at Eastern Mennonite University, Chapeldick was a five-time NCAA D3 All-American. She held school records between the 400 and 1500 meter distance and was three-time regional athlete of the year and six-time ODAC scholar athlete of the year. She also served as team captain and was chair of SAC. She graduated in 2016 from EMU with a degree in biology at the top of her class and went on to race for Atlanta Track Club post-collegiately. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Hannah about the grind of becoming a coach and her experiences as a woman in coaching. Thanks for keeping track. Keeping Track is proudly sponsored by TheFeed.com for the next four episodes. The Feed is the largest online marketplace for your sports nutrition, offering the brands you know and love from Scratch Labs to Cliff Bar to Morton, plus their athlete-customized supplements called Feed Formulas. They carry over 250 brands, so you have thousands of products to choose from and try. Also, what we love about The Feed is that their products are curated, meaning they spend a lot of time picking and choosing what they want to offer on their site, so you know you're seeing the best product on the market. Go claim up to $80 of feed credit on thefeed.com backslash keeping track. Everyone, welcome back to Keeping Track. Today, we're going to continue our Women in Coaching series with the women's cross-country and middle-distance coach at Brown, Hannah Chapeldick. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us on Keeping Track. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so I would love for you to give people a little bit of background on, obviously, you are a distance runner, and that's kind of part of your passion for the sport. Like, How did you get into the sport before you even found coaching? Yeah, actually, honestly, I think probably the reason that I joined track for the first time is because I was uh, I was particularly sad one day in middle school. And I remember my grandma coming up to me and being like, I think you need to try a sport because one day, you know, you're going to feel overwhelmed and sad and you need to have some teammates who are going to be there who can kind of pick you up off the ground when you're feeling like this. And I think the best way to do that would be through sports. (laughs) And so I think actually after that conversation, that was probably in seventh grade. And I remember coming out for the track team as a jumper at the end of seventh grade for the first time just thinking like, oh, high jump, long jump, that looks fun. I think I'll do that. And I always liked racing my friends on the playground and stuff, but I definitely was more of a thinking of myself as an artist or a musician as a kid. So it was funny to kind of see myself jump into something completely new and fall in love with it really quickly. Wow. Your grandma was like so smart. That was such good advice of her. (laughs) No, I need to go thank her. Yeah. Um, And so then you ended up running middle distance, is that right? Later into high school and college? Yeah, so it took me a really long time to um, kind of develop as a distance runner. So throughout my whole middle school, then high school, then college career, I was slowly moving up in distance, kind of started in like that jumps, you know, speed and power world, and then slowly moved up to like 200, 400, and then kind of accidentally discovered a passion for long distance before I had the talent for long distance. And so uh, when I was a soccer player, I was a sprinter. And then I eventually just decided to um, leave soccer and join cross country. And then 
I guess throughout college, because I was in division three, I had a chance to try a lot of different events. So I competed in everything from the sprint relays, the four by one, all the way through cross country. So it was really cool to kind of have that broad depth of experience, but then also kind of lean into what I really was passionate about, which was distance running. And then by the end, I was able to have some success in cross country just because of, I think, how much I loved the team atmosphere of it and how much I loved how much it challenged me as well. What did you love so much about distance running? I think it's pretty obvious that what you put into it is what you get out of it. And I don't know that there's much else in life that has as direct a correlation to that as distance running. And so for me, that was really satisfying. Like it challenged me in a way that I don't think anything really had before. And I was able to throw my whole self into it. And I didn't start out as the fastest person on the track for sure when I was younger, but just by being consistent, I realized how much you can get out of yourself that you, um, you know, probably couldn't have the year before or without all that work. And so I just think it's, it's very pure and it teaches you how to just show up every single day. And I think that was really exciting to me. I feel the same way. That's one of the things about it. I love the most, but I think for a lot of people, distance running finds them. You kind of realize yeah. that you have a, have a talent for it, but it very quickly becomes such a core part of who you are because I mean, it's, it's literally a reminder every day that you're someone that doesn't give up. So it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's addicting in that way, but it's also like empowering in that way. And so I think distance running is a sport that finds you and, and wraps you up really quickly and then stays with you for a really long time. Yes, definitely enhances the rest of your life. I think that's cool. Um, So where was it that you went to school? I went to a tiny school called Eastern Mennonite University in Virginia. So that was your, that was your sports career. Is that how the timeline goes? No. So I actually, after I graduated, I felt like I had some goals on the track that I hadn't quite hit. Um, and so I actually joined Atlanta track club right after graduating. Uh, right. Okay. All I was doing a year of service. Um, so working in the nonprofit space in Atlanta and then also training and competing with Atlanta track club. So I mostly functioned as a pacer, like a rabbit on the track. And so I did a lot of in professional meets, you know, I'd run the first half of the race, help the field get pulled along. Um, and then every once in a while, if I'd paced, you know, a certain number of races, I kind of earned my way into a race myself. And so that was a really fun kind of blue collar approach to continuing to train. Um, And then it was at the end of that year, I had suffered an injury. So I tore my labrum, um, unfortunately, during an 800, actually. Um, And at that point, I was, I think I was literally just hanging out on a weekend morning, just chilling in my house. And I got a call from the athletic director at my alma mater. and. I kind of had known that my college coach was potentially stepping away, but I didn't realize that it was going to happen two weeks before the season started. And I just remember my heart started beating because I kind of had a feeling about what was happening. But the athletic director was like, hey, Hannah, like, what are you doing for the next couple months? We might need you to step in. And so um, because I was already injured and I was kind of at a transition point anyway, I decided to move back to Virginia and take over as the head men's and women's cross country coach at Eastern Mennonite University. And it was a huge jump. I'd only ever coached kids before. So it was something that like, I wasn't fully prepared for, but I just felt incredibly drawn to it. And I knew right away, like, this is something that I want to lean into and try. And from then on, it's been like, I've been really sure that this is, this is my passion and this is something that I want to do. So someone back at your alma mater must have recommended you highly, like, 
or did your athletic director know you wanted to coach one day? Because they seemed to think, to see that in you, that you'd be good for the program, be a good coach and call you up into it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I had considered the athletic director to be a mentor for me. And so I, I was already really close to him. We had a really good relationship and I think he saw my passion for the sport and I had started a kid's track club and kind of been the head coach of that for several years at my school. So he knew I had some interest in it, but to be honest, I don't think I would have thought of myself as a candidate for college coaching. And I'm not entirely sure why um, that had never occurred to me. Um, And so like, that's one of the reasons why as a coach now, I try to do as much shoulder tapping as possible. Like if I see that in someone, I try to mention it to them right away because I think a lot of women um, maybe don't naturally form that confidence without hearing it from somebody else first. And I think that's just maybe a little bit cultural, but to have that confidence placed in me was really huge. And it was hard. And it was like an ongoing process of continuing to build the confidence in that year and just ever since then as well. But I think it's awesome that he saw that potential in me because I I wouldn't have thought of it myself right away. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think you're right about that. Um, I remember we were talking to Diljeet Taylor a couple seasons ago for the podcast of, uh, who's out at BYU. And she mentioned, you know, it was Gags, her coach, who told her she'd be a great coach one day. And I think he said it to her a few times. And I don't think she had considered it as a profession uh, in her future. But then there she is now out there crushing it. So um, you have to kind of give credit <laughs> to people who see like non-traditional leadership qualities mm-hmm. in people. Cause I think a lot of times people have an idea of what a good coach looks like. And maybe those qualities aren't necessarily feminine qualities, um, but that's just because they haven't seen it modeled as well. And so a lot of times I think there's people that could be really, really good coaches who don't have like the typical, um, you know, loud, boisterous, um, charismatic um, characteristics of a coach, but who, actually have really strong leadership skills that show up in different ways. So 100%, I think this is something um, that is a big hurdle for women in leadership. And it's that they feel like, I mean, this is what I'm thinking. And I do consider obviously coaching as a leadership position. You're modeling what you see other men do in their leadership roles. And like some of that's because that's who a majority of the coaching positions are. But some of it is just like, you know, you're trying to fit yourself into this position and your strengths maybe are something else that are great for leadership, but like you're trying to mold it into something that you're not. So I don't know, like, do you, I feel like this is a good segue into maybe, um, have you seen this play out in the real world somewhere? Because I think this is a really important awareness to have if you're going to be a woman going into a leadership role and do it your way and like do it with your strengths. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly, that's exactly it because like, just as as an example, you know, one time I was at a cross country meet and, um, the woman who was organizing the meet, um, was clearly awesome at her job. She was a coach and she was really like leaning into making sure that everybody was taken care of and doing an awesome job of organizing. But at one point she was yelling just like, Hey, everyone get over here, you know, gather over here. And I overheard a high school boy or a group of high school boys making fun of the pitch of her voice. Like as she was yelling, they were like, and um, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like, Oh, come on guys. Like, (laughs) like let's be a little more mature. But then I thought about it for a while. And I, I suddenly realized that that had been a huge barrier for me too, because 
I am not very loud. And when I yell, you know, I, it's really hard for me to um, project in a way that feels natural. And I think a lot of that is me being scared of sounding stupid or, or people making fun of me or not listening to me. And then you put yourself out there in that way. And like, people don't necessarily um, uh, listen to women who are yelling. It doesn't, we don't hear that very often. And we're kind of like naturally, um, you know, used to not, yeah, we're just, we're just not used to hearing it. And so for me, when we had this, uh, when I had this experience of overhearing these high school boys, just kind of being silly and making fun of it a little bit, I realized that that's a real serious barrier um, to women who aren't used to raising their voices. So that's a, that's a requirement for coaching is sometimes you have to yell, you got to get people's attention and that can be a pretty significant barrier. So I think it's important that we kind of lean into training our boys and young men to be a little bit more respectful of, of women in leadership, especially in those more outgoing roles, but then also to empower women to not be afraid to raise their voice and to not feel like, oh, if I, if I yell, people are going to think that I'm crazy or something. It's like, no, that's just what we have to do as coaches. And, and then also sometimes there's going to be coaches who speak quietly and um, we just have to, you know, find, find a way as a female coach to develop the respect in our group so that when we gather people together, we're able to speak as ourselves and not as someone that we aren't. And I think the more women in coaching we have, the more ex- different examples we'll be able to see of like different ways that you can be in a leadership role because you're right. Like a lot of women, I mean, there's a lot of men and women who aren't loud, but I just feel like, is that required for leadership? I mean, maybe we can see someone who just commands a lot of respect. Like does Mark Wetmore show up to practice yelling? I don't know. I'm not on his team. Someone mail us and ask Someone send us a letter who's on the team and tell us if you had a coach that never had to raise their voice, but still commanded a lot of respect, like what was their vibe? Um, I just think we need more modeling. And that's kind of part of what we're trying to do by getting kind of inside the brains of people like you and some of the other women who are getting these coaching positions. So, but there are certainly women, I always think this, like there are certainly natural, like traits that women have that are good for leadership that I don't think are as valued or you would put in like your top five leadership traits. Right. So like, I think, um, not to like stereotype, but like women can be more patient and flexible and nurturing. You see those in moms, for example, who are like kind of the de facto leaders of the house in a lot of cases. So it's like, why doesn't that translate into leadership instead? It's just kind of like, Oh, that's just how you are. Um, so yeah, definitely need more ways to be at the top. Yeah. And I also feel like probably a lot of the successful men in coaching have some of those, you know, more stereotypically feminine characteristics as well. Um, And I think that they should be empowered to play those up as well, because there's a lot of soft skills that maybe men who have found success in the coaching role have used. And it would be really helpful for them to kind of be more vocal about those things so that more people men and women feel empowered that those are valuable leadership traits that can help a team feel, you know, empowered and strong and ready to, you know, face the competition fully prepared. I think, I think um, stereotypically feminine traits are incredibly valuable and present in a lot of different coaches. Mm -hmm. Agree. Agree. Um, I love that segue. We got to your alma mater's coaching position. So then how did you end up at Brown? What were the steps between there? Yeah, so I coached at my alma mater for a couple months. And from the beginning, um, I knew just immediately that this was something I really want to do. And each week that I spent there, 
it was hard. Like it was really one of the hardest things I've ever done, probably the hardest thing I've ever done, especially because some of the people on the team were actually older than me. And a lot of them were my former teammates. And so honestly, like the way that I was able to navigate that was just to make sure that I was communicating all the time and talking to them. You know, if there's something that I didn't know, I was very upfront about not knowing it, but being willing to look it up later. And I just tried to make sure that anytime I asked them to do anything, I had a really solid why that I was telling them to do that. So that if they ever asked me, I had a good answer. And it wasn't just because I said so. And so I think developing that mutual respect was huge for me. And it was a great learning experience to be a head coach when you're 23, to kind of just be humble and you don't have to be perfect, but you have to be vulnerable and um, you have to care about your athletes. And if you can be those things, you can have a lot of impact in my opinion. So, but from the beginning, I kind of knew that I was interested in, if I was going to do this, I wanted to kind of do it at a high level. And so eventually I was interested in moving more towards division one coaching. And so I let them know pretty early, like, Hey, I'm really happy in this interim title, but I, I am going to move on afterwards. So like, let's start the hiring process for my replacement here. And I'm going to move back to Atlanta and volunteer with Georgia Tech. So that's what I did after I was done with that position. And I spent a couple of years to start with um, volunteering at Georgia Tech. So really seeing Division One athletics from the inside for the first time. I was a Division Three student athlete. Um, I had a lot of success at the Division Three level and was able to kind of see what it looked like at a national level. But obviously the Division One world is really different. So those years of volunteering were really valuable, really hard at times. I had to, I was also still trying to run. So I was volunteering and running and working part-time. And I actually was, <laughs> I was in a, I was living in a church basement and I was the janitor of the church in exchange for free rent. So I was really grinding. Like I was really hustling. Man. Um, making it so. <laughs> the grind was real. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, the grind is real for all the volunteer coaches out there. Shout out volunteer coaches. It is a hard, thankless position, but it's really at this point, the only way to kind of get the experience that you need to get a job in the college coaching world. So, um, yeah. But then after that, I decided to go to the University of Florida to get my MBA and was able to help out as a graduate assistant there. That was an amazing experience. Obviously, Coach Holloway and Coach Chris Linsky were just amazing mentors. And they're at the absolute top of their game as far as track and field programs. So to be able to see from the inside what it really takes to be successful at that level was completely invaluable. So Shout out to them as well for giving me the opportunity to do that. And then, yeah, after that, I applied, started applying for jobs. And Brown was the one that really stood out immediately as a really good mix between, um, you know, Division One athletics and also that holistic development of the person that I care a lot about. And so I knew pretty quickly that um, Brown was the place I wanted to be. And I really leaned into that application and I'm really happy to be here. And you started at Brown. When was that? So June 2021, just over a year ago. 2021. Okay. So you've more than paid your dues with your janitor days, which is, it is dues paying as an assistant coach. You're right. Like it's tough to do that many hours, that much work and not get paid. Um, that's kind of the way things work in the coaching world. I don't know if that weeds out a lot of women too, that element of like, you kind of have to live in a van by the river type of lifestyle <laughs> to make it through the first two years. Yeah, no, I mean, completely. And so that's a huge barrier because um, a lot of women who would be great coaches have a lot of skills that would make them great employees for any organization. And so you have to kind of realize that 
for the short term, your earnings potential is going to be pretty low because um, as a volunteer, you don't get paid and you probably have to be working part-time jobs to kind of make ends meet. And so I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of young female coaches end up finding other opportunities is just from a financial standpoint or from a family standpoint, it's not very feasible. Um, But then also, and almost more importantly, I think as a volunteer coach, you have to have this reserve, this inner reserve of confidence that you're doing okay and that you're not messing things up and that you're making steps of growth towards being a better coach because a lot of times it's pretty easy and this is no no fault of the coaches but they're they're doing a lot of stuff they're handling a lot of stuff as well and so you hear when you do something wrong but you don't always hear when you do something right and so you have to kind of remind yourself if i'm not hearing negative feedback i'm hearing positive feedback you have to kind of be willing to ask for that feedback and to say hey like what can i work on um what can i do a better job on those kind of things and then kind of maintain your confidence while still working on the things that you need to work on. Um, If you can do both of those things at once, you can be successful, but those things are hard. That's really good feedback because I feel like if you are someone who is looking up and saying, is that okay? Is that okay? And you're not getting anything back, you might start to feel like it's a little bit thankless or you're not doing a good job and you might leave early. So anyone out there in those positions, you're doing okay. Just keep growing keep growing (laughs) in there. And honestly, the thing that kept me going was I had some really, really strong mentors. Um, One of the ways that I was connected with those was from the coaches association. So the USTFCCCA, Um, they have a women in coaching mentorship program. And that was absolutely the reason that I'm still in coaching because I, I mean, I, to be honest, I think I literally called my mentors in tears sometimes just being like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm good at this that kind of thing. And they were the ones who kind of, who talked me up and said, no, listen, you're doing a good job. I promise you, you're doing a good job. You will learn, you're going to make mistakes, but um, you're going to learn, you're going to grow and you're going to do a good job. And just hearing those things was what I needed to keep me going. And so now I think about that. Now I have mentees in that program and I try really hard to remember what I learned as a volunteer is just that I just needed, I just needed some affirmation and some like, encouragement that I was on the right track. And that those little words went so far for me. Yeah, we, we've we linked that before the um, Women in Coaching resource with the USTFCCCA. <laughs> um, we'll link it again to this episode because it is very helpful. And um, who are some of the mentors you've had along the way? Like, were, did you have, you had some great coaches in there. Did you have any female mentors or was it mostly the men's coaches at the programs that you were at before? Or like what, What did that look like for you? Yeah, definitely. So at the programs that I had, like I said, at Florida, they were really helpful in teaching me so much. And then at Georgia Tech, Alan Drosky and Becky Megacy were huge for me. And then as far as through the um, female mentorship program, um, Kelly Phillips, who used to be at Florida State, and Rhonda Riley, who was formerly at Duke, both of them are actually out of coaching right now pursuing other things and having a great time actually. Um, And I still, you know, still talk to them sometimes for advice because they have a lot of really valuable um, wisdom to share. And then Sheila Burrell also at San Diego State University. She's, she's been awesome too. So I think those, those three were kind of my um, three mentors who were females who really impacted me a lot. And then also just conversations with so many different coaches, men and women, um, coaching peers who are kind of my age, who 
you know, we provided mutual support to each other. That's been huge. Um, I'm a pretty outgoing person and coaching is a pretty um, social career. And what I realized is like, I really need to have other people, even if they're not in the same city as me, you know, people around the country who we see at meets, who we can just give each other a little bit of encouragement. And that goes a really long way. And we can kind of bounce ideas off each other and, you know, share workouts, talk shop, that kind of thing. So valuable in the long run. Kind of the same thing the athletes at the meet are doing, where you see your like runner friends every couple of weeks, talk about training. It is pretty crazy how like coaches have really close coaching friends who live all over the country and we see each other pretty often. It's pretty neat because I think almost any state that I travel to, I would at least know somebody from the profession who I've, who I've met along the way. Yeah. The running world is like pretty amazing like that. The running community. <laughs> um, so what, where do you see yourself? Like, what's your ideal future in coaching look like? Like, do you have a plan for climbing up in the ranks or like, what, what have you thought about as far as that? Yeah. I mean, I think my next step in coaching is really to just stay in a place and have an opportunity to build something. And I feel like Brown is an awesome spot for that. I'm really happy here. I'd like to stay here for a while and see what we can do um, with just some consistency in the program. And so for now, I'm really um, happy where I am. And I think long-term, I'm definitely interested in a head coaching role just because with an MBA background, the administrative portion is a little bit less intimidating. It's kind of exciting to have a little bit more freedom over how the programs run and um, you know what kind of tasks you would delegate to your future staff. That's something that I like to think about a lot because a lot of times with coaching, you know, there's only so many coaches you can have and there's a lot of stuff to do. And so it's fun to think about creative ways that you can spread that work, share that work, and kind of be more efficient in your processes that you do on the administrative side so that you can lean more into the athletes. And so long-term, that's something that I'm definitely interested in um, is being a head coach. But that's something that I want to make sure that I'm really ready for the position and have felt like I've kind of gotten a really good, efficient system of being an assistant coach first. Um, so it's exciting to me to to think about and to continue planning. And right now, I think one of the best things that I've been able to do is just kind of learn from the head coaches that I've worked under and kind of take the things that I like that they did and some of the things that I would do differently and start to just mentally catalog those things so that in the future, I can kind of be the head coach that I want to be um, true to my values and true to my skills as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you have your MBA. What do you recommend for other um, like women going into coaching as undergrad degrees or postgrad degrees, graduate school degrees? I'm guessing yeah. the MBA, but also what were you undergrad? So I studied biology pre-med in undergrad, which originally I think, you know, there was, I had some interest in public health and also in physical therapy. So those were two potential paths that I was thinking for myself during undergrad. And I think that that biology degree um, comes in handy every day, of course, for working with the human body and learning about how, um, you know, training adaptations happen. Having that biology degree is an awesome background. So I definitely recommend that for anyone who might be interested in that. And then the business world, I mean, Gosh, I really think like even athletics functions as a business now. So having that business acumen is huge. And so I I do think my MBA was valuable both for that and also just for general leadership and process improvement 
type considerations because, you know, there's a lot of, you're handling a lot of different moving pieces when you're a coach. And so to be able to think about it in a, in a little bit more of like a, um, think about it in a different way and see what the business world, how the business world approaches the challenges of handling a really complicated environment, I think is very transferable to coaching. Um, Because not only are you working with people, but you're also working with resources and, you know, alumni relations. And there's just like a lot of constituencies, like different groups of people that you kind of are dealing with. And then also a lot of logistical challenges around the office. And so to be able to have a good system for handling your time and handling your energy appropriately and allocating resources throughout your program I think a business degree is actually really useful too. Yes. I feel like a lot of people might not have known that until they got kind of um, both feet into the coaching world and were a little bit like overwhelmed. So that's good to know. Um, What are some of the values you like do have? You mentioned the values you have for your kids and for the season. um, And as a coach, like what are some of those guiding values that you take into the cross country season? I mean, I really, I really want to lean into the holistic development of the student athlete because like I was kind of talking about earlier with my own development as an athlete, I think that um, you, have to, you have to constantly be thinking about your why and be transferring the lessons that you're learning on the track or on the cross-country course into the life that you're going to live moving forward. And I think that um, being part of a team, especially at the college level, especially with the level of dedication that that provides, um, it gives, it's a perfect training ground for difficult things that you're going to face later in your life. And so for me, it's like one of the things our team talks about a lot is being loose and joyful. So I didn't come up with those terms. That's something that the team has carried over year to year, but I absolutely love it because if you can approach these pretty significant challenges in your life with as much, um, poise and confidence as you can, um, I think you're going to get a lot further in life and what better opportunity to practice those skills than the challenge of being on a collegiate sports team. And it's in a safe environment. You know, if you fail from a performance standpoint, your value on the team doesn't change. You know, in my mind, that's a really key part of knowing and trusting that your coach is going to continue to support you, even if you fail. So that allows you to kind of take the risks that you actually need to take to be successful. And that's kind of how life is too. And if you can surround yourself with people who support you in a really true unconditional way, you're going to feel a lot more free to take um, the risks that you need to take in your professional life, in your personal life um, and on the track so that you can kind of get the most out of yourself. Definitely. That's a good thing to remind these student athletes of. And I think there's a, there's a quote I always like, it was in one of my, I think it was in my training journal from Lauren Fleshman about how sports is the arena where you can slay the dragons of your life. Or she phrased it in a way that was like, oh yes, like this is the safe place to practice those things. And then you get into the real world and you faced it. Like you figured that out about yourself. So very good to teach them that. Um, Hannah, is there anything about, so at Keeping Track, we like to ask if there's anything about you that doesn't get talked about as much or just anything about your profession that you wanted to talk about that we hadn't touched on yet? Well, I have a website that I haven't been updating lately, but I want to lean more into so I could do a little plug. Yes, please do. (laughs) (laughs) So I started working on schooloftrack.org 
um, as a resource for aspiring and beginning track and field coaches during a job that I had as a secretary where I was mostly just sitting at a desk saying hello to people. So um, I had a lot of extra free time and I kind of leaned into uh, my passion of coaching um, and created this website. So if you're interested in you know, supporting a young or aspiring coach, or if you are a young or aspiring coach, I would love for you to check out my website and leave feedback, see what else is kind of needed. I realized that there's no, there's no cohesive training plan for coaches. And so a lot of it's just talking to people and learning from people who have been there before, which is an awesome and irreplaceable resource. But I'm trying to get as much of that down on, you know, down on paper as possible. So that's what I'm kind of trying to do from schooloftrack.org. Love that. We will link that. And it's, yeah, that's a great thing to start because, you know, you have to wedge your way into the network to get some of that information. And if you're a new newcomer, you might not feel like you can call up, you know, a very respected coach and ask them that stuff. So good to have some baseline knowledge there. Yeah. Um, thanks so much, Hannah. This was awesome. I think it was really helpful for a lot of young women looking to get into the coaching role. And yeah, we'll be cheering you on at Brown in a few weeks. <laughs> you guys start soon, right? Yeah, we have our first meet on Friday. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks so much. Keep track. Keep track. We have a small announcement. Our women's sports network that we started called Keeping Her Forward, which was ourselves, Hear Her Sports, and Strides Forward, now renamed Women's Running Stories, um, with Elizabeth Emery and Cherie Louise Turner, has merged with an even bigger network, Evergreen Podcast. Same content, same place, more opportunities. We are excited. Hear Her Sports is a podcast for everyone who loves stories by and about women striving to improve and make a difference in their lives. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery, a former professional cyclist. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in the business of sport through a thoughtful conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. My guests and I explore the glorious and frustrating issues in sports, history, equity, training, nutrition, and so much more. Join us for inspiration, for community, and for love of being a strong athletic woman.